little bit of time, so uh, we wanted to do a Sweezen Drummer Watch right now. So we're doing this uh, on a regular basis to kind of go over some of the new evidence-based articles that are coming out in emergency medicine and doing a quick summary of them so we can all kind of keep up to speed with our evidence-based medicine. So the first study came out in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery uh, last month in September. And essentially, this is studying using evidence-based guidelines regarding CT imaging for trauma patients. So CT imaging in general in ED visits has more than tripled in the last 11 years, between 96 and 2007. This, this study was actually for low-risk, what we would call moderate trauma patients, and basically creating a guideline for when to CT them and when not to CT them. So basically, they, this committee created 15 evidence-based 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 <laughs> guidelines for use of diagnostic radiology. They compared, they did a prospective data analysis for four months in 2010, and they did a retrospective, compared that to retrospective data analysis from 2008 before these evidence-based treatment guidelines were implemented. So it's basically comparing the new method to the conventional method. So what they found was that there were 612 trauma patients with the conventional method that they enrolled, and 611 that they did prospective data analysis on after implementing the guidelines. So they also created min, mean injury severity scores. They were, I don't know how significant this is, but they were slightly uh, lower, the meaning less injury in the before group, in the conventional group versus the after group. However, both groups had pretty low mean injury severity scores. So they were all pretty low risk traumas to begin with. What they found was that implementing these guidelines, total number of CT scans decreased from 1194 to 757 between the two groups. Average scan went from 1.9 to 1.2 per patient. The estimated total CT charges went from 2.9 million to 1.8 million. And there were no missed injuries in the guideline group. Hospital length of stay didn't differ between the two groups. So, the discussion or kind of the points that I got from this, one, the first one is pretty obvious, but if you have more severe mechanism or severe injuries, you need more imaging. The second is, what was interesting here is they found they supplemented a lot of CT imaging for serial OBS and examination for initial evaluation of trauma patients. And they found that this actually will be equivalent to the data, the diagnostic data from conventional methods, basically scanning patients. Um, but it resulted in reduced CT scan imaging, which results in less radiation and less cost per patient. This is very institution specific. Using these type of guidelines can't be used everywhere. It has to be somewhere where you have the ability to use, do serial observation in place of CT imaging. And that's not every place, not some ho-dunk small ER. It's not going to be happening. Or So maybe at per, perhaps at tertiary institutions or places where you have residents, this may be something that you can benefit from. So I don't know how much this pertains to us at UCI, because we do technically have protocol, but from what I find, it's mostly pan scan. Um, and unless it's like something really small in terms of mechanism. But so we don't really necessarily apply it. This doesn't apply to us. It's something to keep in mind wherever you go to work after this. So the next study was basically talking about bedside diagnostic evaluation of interception done by PEDS ER doctors in, and this was project, excuse me, this was published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine last month in September. So this was a prospective data analysis to see if bedside ultrasound performed by PEDS ER trained physicians in pediatric ERs could diagnose suspected intussusceptions. 
And so they trained six P PDR guys to basically go through a course where they learn how to do bedside intersusception bowel ultrasounds. Over three years, they enrolled about 82 kids that they suspected to have intersusception. And, they and certain kids were randomized into different categories. So 13 of them received pediatric radiologist-performed ultrasounds and were actually diagnosed with it, with intersusception through that ultrasound. And another 13 were diagnosed with intersusception by bedside ultrasound done by an ED physician. Of these 13, 11 were true positives, two were false positives. And with these 13, and outside these 13, there were two false negative studies done by PEDS ED docs. One was a 20-month-old male that did have an intersusception, but it got spontaneously reduced during the ultrasound. And the other was a 16-month-old male. They were able to diagnose the intersusception, but the probe and depth settings were outside the study protocol, so they weren't able to use that, so they called it a false negative. What they found for bedside ultrasound performed at PDD docs was that it was pretty sensitive, 85%, but specificity-wise, it was much higher, 97%. And you see the positive predictive value of 85% and a negative predictive value of 97%. So the utility of this um, it remains to be seen. Bottom line is you can't really have false negatives, something as serious as intussusception, or you've got to have it as minimal as possible, uh, as equivalent at least to the standard of care, whatever we have now. So until we can eliminate those, bedside ultrasound by ED physicians needs to be confirmed by either a radiologist-performed ultrasound or air enemas. Um, the second point to kind of bring up is the utility of this. It's difficult, first of all, morbidity, excuse me, the obesity rates are rising, so it's more and more difficult to do bowel ultrasounds on kids for either appendicitis or intussusception. And, and plus, it's really difficult to get trained in this. I don't know how feasible this is for PZR docs or ER docs in general to be able to do this um, because it's different than just doing a gallbladder scan or a kidney scan. I think it's much more, it requires a lot more technique. So I don't know what the actual utility of it is. And... But bottom line, if you're going to do it, or actually if you don't have another option, so in EDs that you have limited radiology capabilities, say you don't have someone, a radiologist to interpret at night, or it's a small ED, you don't have that ability, then it's okay to use that in a well-appearing patient if you can serially observe them until their symptoms resolve with a negative scan in a well-appearing patient or transfer them to a more capable facility. Did the paper at all say what the sensitivity and specificity of radiologists are for... Diagnosing interception. Mm. I don't know if it mentioned it or not. I'm not. I'm sure. I think it did, but I can. I don't remember the numbers, but I'll get back to you. It was higher, but I'll get it back to you. I'll let you know. So the next study is talking about. This is an interesting study assessing Medicare's initiative measure that they took to measure uh, the use of CT scans for atraumatic uh, headaches that present to the emergency department. This was again promised in the annals of EM uh, last month. So Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, CMS, basically is, this is, was part of their initiative and is, is part of their initiative to publicly report and eventually pay reimbursement with specific quality and efficiency measures. Essentially what that means for us is that eventually um, different things like atraumatic headaches or abdominal pain they'll present to the ED will, I, according to Medicare, what their goal is is to create certain measures or things that may, they need to be able to fall under to be able to properly get reimbursed for the imaging or labs that you're going to order, mostly imaging. So what they, this was their efficiency measure that Medicare, this was an assessment of the Medicare's efficiency measure they created to evaluate brain CTs for patients that present with atraumatic headaches to the ED. The National Quality Forum, which basically oversees all the initiatives that CMS creates, rejected this and said that it was an inappropriate study, but they went ahead and did it anyway. So 
what they included was these exclusions. And the exclusions were basically, if you had these exclusions, then you were found to have, it was appropriate to order a CT scan. So what they, these were the ones they included, Medicare thought was appropriate to get a scan on, and nothing outside of these. LP-associated headaches, dizziness, paresthesias, ataxia, subarachnoid hemorrhage, complicated or thunderclap headaches, focal neuro deficits, HIV, tumor, or mass. So pretty obvious ones, but obviously not completely inclusive. So what this study did was a retrospective review of a convenience sample of 748 charts that Medicare had deemed to have received inappropriate head CTs because they didn't diagnose, excuse me, they didn't really document an exclusion. So what Medicare had done is done a retrospective chart review and, and found that if you had documented these exclusions, the ones we had just mentioned, then it was appropriate and your CT scan should be reimbursed. But if you hadn't documented these exclusions, then you may have done an inappropriate head CT and you may face eventually not getting reimbursed. So they did a retrospective study on 748 of these that were deemed inappropriate. What they found was in actuality, in 489 of the 748, there were exclusions documented, if you looked at the charts closely. And the remaining 259 of that 748, 123 of them had, didn't have their exclusions per se, but had pretty universally accepted indications for a head CT that most of us can agree on of various reasons. So basically what they found is that Medicare's, this initiative that they created and their chart review was accurate by a whopping 17%. So essentially this initiative, what this study points out is that it's fatally flawed. It's not validated by chart review. It was implemented against what the NQF had recommended. It discredited both organizations essentially to a certain degree. Um, and it has a big impact on us because as we move along, Medicare and insurance companies will, I believe at least, will start to implement more and more measures like this to essentially regulate quality of care and reimbursement by creating guidelines that will control our practice. So I don't know what the eventual implications of this will be, but it's something to keep in mind because if things like this eventually get in, uh, validated and implemented, it could compromise patient care for basically reimbursement and money. The next study was published in the Journal of Pediatrics uh, in August, and it's talking about pediatric TBI and radiation risk. So this is mainly for minor head trauma in PEDS patients with TBI. So what they included is they took data from PCARN. For those who don't PCARN, it's the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network that has a huge data on kids both the greater than the age of two and less than the age of two. So this was specifically for patients or kids less than the age of two with a blunt head trauma that was considered mild. So uh, GCS score 14 and 15, and a minor head trauma, minor mechanism. So they had 10,718 low-risk patients that had a pretest probability of traumatic brain injury of less than 1%, 0.9%. For these patients, they had decided that their risk to basically get a CT is if they thought in this group they found that a patient had a TBI risk of more than 4.8%. So then if you, in the low-risk group, if they thought you had more than a 4.8% chance, of having an injury, um, some kind of brain mechanism, then you're gonna go ahead and scan you. 1490 were high-risk patients that had a higher expected probability of having, um, because of their mechanism of having a TBI of 4.4%. In this population, they had a lower threshold to scan, naturally. For review, for probably more for the interns, but this decision-making rules came, that came from the PCARN data is something we use all the time for minor, basically when to scan or not to scan in minor head trauma in kids. So 
This basically, these are your decision rules. In less than two years of age, if you have normal mentation, uh, no scalp hematomas with the exception of frontal cephalohematomas that are okay, uh, LOC that's less than five seconds, non, a very non-severe injury mechanism, no skull fracture that's palpated in normal behavior. If you can meet all this criteria, then you likely can get away with not scanning that patient. If you're greater than two years of age, normal mentation, no LOC, no vomiting, uh, again, a non-severe injury mechanism, no signs of any basal or skull fractures, and a non-severe headache. Uh, and if you can meet those criteria, then you can not scan your patient. So we use these often in patients that will come in, kids that will come in with minor head injuries and to decide when to scan or not to scan them. And the data that this was collected from is what was used to create the study. So uh, what this pretty much found is that it all comes down to pretest probability in one way or another when de deciding in pediatric TBI patients when to image or not to image. Obviously for high-risk patients with high-risk mechanisms or they have a low-risk mechanism but they don't look good, you're going to go ahead and scan them. But, uh, and for low-risk patients, you might go ahead and not scan them and obs them. But uh, it's, this kind of also helps point out, the study talked a little bit about the moderate-risk patients, those in-betweeners that maybe have a low-risk mechanism look good, but they vomited a couple times in the ED, you're not sure if you want to scan them, it is possible to do a serial observation period, and if they don't clinically deteriorate, you may not have to get that CT. Cherish, you said the low-risk patients were under 4%? Uh, the low-risk patients are, uh, to, to scan, were under 4 point, if they basically, they yeah, yes, oh yeah, they're negative for all these, and they're all uh, less than two years of age. So the next study talks about uh, pre-hospital point-of-care testing for troponin. Uh, these were, this was uh, published in the pre-hospital emergency care last month. So basically, they created an ISTAT for troponin, and they talked about, do the results of the ISTAT measurement of troponin on the field mimic those that you're going to get in the ED? Um, so they took 42 patients with chest pain, and they tested their blood samples with ISTAT in a moving vehicle and then in the ED. Three samples were not uh, included because of errors, 13. So it basically came out 39 patients, and 13 were found to be positive. Only one of these patients ended up having a STEMI. But bottom line, there was no significant difference between the results obtained on the field and in the ED with your traditional troponin testing and your ISTAT. Um, so this test takes about 10 minutes to do. The utility of this on the field with most majority of our transport times being rather short, in, at least in our county and maybe in most metropolitan areas in the surrounding areas, mm, not very high. Um, utility for longer transport times, perhaps if you're in rural areas, there may be a utility for this test in that kind of a setting. So, but the vast majority of pre-hospital systems, especially in metropolitan areas, I don't necessarily know if there's going to be a benefit of getting that troponin on the field. Um, and there's a lot of cost and logistical issues. One, it's expensive. Two, it takes 10 minutes to perform. Three, the cartridge that's used for it is only viable two weeks without a refrigerator. So the amount of money it's going to take to really house this and do this may not be worth the benefit that you're going to get. So bottom line, does it change outcome and patient outcome and clinical outcomes? I don't think so. And that kind of looks, we have to wait and see, but it doesn't look like it if it doesn't really change anything. So this was a study, I included this because this came out in critical care medicine last month. This is an, an endless debate about whether a single dose automate given in the ED will lead to eventually adrenal sufficiency and mortality increase in septic patients. So often, most of the time when you rotate through the ICU and especially through the PICU, you'll hear the PICU attendings rant and rave about how you know, uh, automate, we should never use automate and cause adrenal suppression, even the one-time dose. 
So what this study did was do a meta-analysis study of single-use etomidate for RSI and its effect on adrenal access and mortality in septic patients. What they found were five studies that really studied single-use etomidate and studied mortality associated with it as a primary outcome. So that was only a total of 865 patients that have had this type of study. Only two of these studies were randomized, etomidate versus an alternative agent, and there was absolutely no mortality difference. Three of them were not randomized, and of the three, only one reported a mortality difference, and it was a non-randomized study. So basically, a lot of this data is coming, or all of these conclusions are coming from really one unrandomized study. Um, for four out of the five, especially out of the five, the three that had the best methodology scores were in the four out of five, and they demonstrated no difference in primary outcome on basis of mortality due to single dose of Atomidate. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, Atomidate is safe, and it's a great option to use. It doesn't affect your hemodynamic, it affects your hemodynamic instability a lot better than any of the, a lot of the other induction agents that we have available to us readily in the ED. And until we can come out and do a properly designed, randomized, well-sized, appropriate study that uh, uses single-dose dominate for RSI and, and studies it for mortality rates in septic patients, we really can't say that it is inappropriate. And here are some questions. In the paper there wasn't, but um, I don't know the mechanism. I'd have to look it up. We're all just told. Works. No, honestly, no one knows the mechanism. You guys let me know when you're ready to move on. Ready, Freddie? Okay. Dose. for pointing that out. Are you guys ready? Okay. And your last question. That's it. Oh, here you go.
Oh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Zombies here. <laughs>